Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. The scripture reading will be from Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou spakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Before I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou dearest, no, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. <sighs> Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall, suit, shall, show, shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else burnt offering, not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit of broken and a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy God, do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Our speaker this morning is known to all of us. He, him and his wife have been in fellowship for a number of years, our brother Bill Lumsden, so we're going to turn the remainder of our Bible instruction time over to him. Brother I purposely didn't indicate what I wanted our young fellow to to uh, read today, hoping that it would somehow lead into what I 
was planning to speak on, and it does. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about spiritual winter seasons. I sometimes think that our spiritual lives can be compared to the seasons of the year. There are wonderful spring-like times when we feel the freshness in our relationship with God. Then summer and fall, which are wonderful also in their own ways. But then there are those winter times in our spiritual life when it seems like God is distant and difficult to reach, perhaps even absent. Did you know that there's no mention of winter in the Bible until the fall? <laughs> there were trees bursting with fruit and rivers flowing with water. People didn't even need clothes. Wherever the Garden of Eden was, it certainly wasn't in Michigan. Some people actually enjoy winter, but whatever you may feel about the seasons, I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about the winter of the soul. Winter may come when someone has lost a job or experienced a vocational failure. They may feel a deep sense of sadness and are not sure without that job who they really are anymore. Winter may arrive the day that word comes back from the doctor that the test was positive. All the dreams you took for granted, that you'll watch the kids grow up and get married, that you'll grow old with your spouse and enjoy a wonderful retirement. Suddenly you're tortured with the thought that you won't be there to enjoy those dreams. Any of these events may chill the soul. Any of them may announce the onset of winter. But the events are not the worst part. The hardest part of winter is that God seems to be gone, or at least distant. This existed in many of the Bible characters, I cry to you, O Lord, for help. Why do you hide your face from me? Why do you reject me? When I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. We can't find God. He doesn't seem to answer. Certain books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and many of the Psalms are winter books. But in all human history, no one has embodied winter more than a man named Job. The story begins in the land of Uz. A man named Job was the greatest man among the people of the East. Let's read about it in the book of Job. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 on chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright 
and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep and three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and fasted in their homes, feasted, feasted in their homes, every one his day, probably their birthday, don't you suppose? Every one his day. And they sent and called their three sisters to eat and to drink with him. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that thy sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Job is blameless and upright, a man that fears God and shuns evil. He's cautious even when he offers his daily sacrifices. God has given him a wonderful life. The amount of blessing he experiences apparently is directly proportional to the amount of obedience that he gives to God. But winter's coming in the land of Uz. Uz will be a place where very bad things happen to a very good man. Us will be a place not only where suffering comes, but it comes without warning, without explanation, creating confusion and despair. I want to read about what happened in that same chapter, starting with verse 13 and reading to verse 22. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword and only I am escaped to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God is falling from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans came out, three bands, and fell upon the camels, and carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and only I am escaped to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they're dead. And only I am escaped to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle, 
and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Picture a theater where there are two stages, an upper stage and a lower stage. We know what's going on in both stages, but the characters in the lower stage don't. Suddenly there's a radical shift of scenery and we're taken to the upper stage. Let's read about what's happening in the upper stage in verse 6 through 12. Now there was was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan said unto Job, rather, and then Satan said, answered the Lord and said, "Just, just, just Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now we know what's caused all this terrible havoc in Job's life. All that Job knows is that he's lost his livestock, his wealth, his servants, and his children. And we wait to see his response. He grieves. He mourns. He worships. He falls on the ground and cries, May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin. But we, what, we switch now back to the upper stage for one brief conversation. And we'll read about that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to, print, to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's none like him the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him, to destroy him without cause. 
And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he's in thine hand, but save his life. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And Job took a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. The key question on the upper stage, and in fact the key question to the whole book of Job is does Job fear God for nothing? Satan is saying, Job is devoted to you because it's in his best interest to do so. Satan is actually charging God for being a little naive. He says, do you think Job really loves you? The truth, he, the truth is, he loves you like children love the ice cream man. Take away all his blessings and he'll no longer be devoted. The question is, can a human hold on to God in the face of suffering? After all, suffering is the test of love. So Job gets hit with another wave of trouble. <clears throat> when his health is attacked, his response is a little more subtle. He does not say the name of the Lord be praised. He goes and sits in the ash heap in the town dump. Maybe this was his way of grieving. Maybe he was inclined to isolate himself because of his skin condition, and maybe even he had a case of leprosy. At this point, Job's wife says, curse God and die. Remember, Job's wife had lost all of her children and wealth, and she was obviously depressed. Her, her suggestion certainly wasn't much comfort to Job. And he replied, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? He's struggling a bit at this point to understand God. After the first wave, the writer, the writer said, in all, in all this, Job did not sin. Now he qualifies things a bit by saying, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Apparently in his heart, he's beginning to struggle just a little. Now Job's friends came to offer their sympathy. They obviously were good friends because they sat with him for seven days and nights, not saying anything. Their love was strong and their grief was great. They apparently could hardly believe the terrible condition that he was in. So they sat silently. This was a powerful act and became part of Jewish life. To this day, Jews will speak of sitting Shiva, literally sitting sevens. Friends will come and sit with one who mourns over a period of a week. Perhaps this is the greatest example in Scripture of what Paul meant in Romans when he said, mourn 
with those who mourn. After seven days and nights, his friends began to speak, and they got into trouble for what they say. As with Job's wife, they've taken a lot of heat over the years, and for good reason, but their silence was brilliant, and it was a gift. Perhaps the best way to comfort and immediate God's presence to someone who is suffering is to just sit with him in silence. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day that he was born. And for the next 28 chapters, he pours out a level of bitterness, confusion, sorrow, and anger toward God that's staggering. He wants to know why God has forsaken him. And his friends can't stand it, and they spend the next 22 chapters voicing one central idea that was the primary theology of the day. It was called the doctrine of retribution. The idea was that goodness results in prosperity and blessing, while wickedness, wickedness results in suffering. It appears that these friends, in their silence, drew Job closer to God than when they spoke. And in that, they pushed him away. So Job, if you're suffering so badly, you must have brought it on yourself. If you're no longer close to God, who do you think moved? If, you'll re if you will repent, he will deliver you from suffering. We often associate well-being with the presence of God and assume suffering means something has gone wrong in our relationship. No one ever won the, won the lottery by saying, Why me, Lord? Of course, pain was not part of God's original plan. And, they, and the day's coming when we will wipe away, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's interesting to note that there was a survey taken among thousands of people <clears throat> asking to what most contributed their spiritual growth. The number one answer was pain. That doesn't mean that we can go up to someone in enormous pain and say, well, the good news is that you're going to grow a lot. Pain is deeper and more mysterious than that. In summer, I'm tempted to think that because of my health and financial condition that I'm running things. But when spiritual winter comes, I learn that I'm not running things after all. Mother used to say that practice makes perfect. Perhaps we can practice a bit with God's presence in the moments of pain. Perhaps when frustrated while standing in a long line at the grocery store, that would be number one on the pain scale. We could ask God to be present in the frustration and having to wait on a clerk that isn't too sharp and doesn't speak English very well. The practice of walking to God, walking with God during many pain 
and serve us well when larger pain comes. We must become aware that everything meaningful in life depends on God, and we should learn to depend more on him. Job spends most of the book complaining to God. In the wintry books of the Bible, most people complain. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You crushed us and made us a hunt for jackals. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? How long, O Lord, how long? People in other cultures prayed, made requests, offered worship, but but only Israel in their ancient world prayed this kind of complaint prayer. And for good reason, because only Israel in all the ancient world believed in the great God who made the heavens and the earth and cared about their pain, and only he could be expected to do something about it. This is what makes these prayers so powerful and an important part of our spiritual life. When we're honest with God, not indulging in self-pity, but are genuinely opening our hearts and ourselves to him, we're asking God to create the kind of condition in our hearts that will make resting in his presence possible again. We can only then expect God to come, and when he does, it may be in unexpected ways. I remember so time, so many times in my life that I've asked God for things, and he's responded, but in a way that was completely different than what I wanted, but it worked nevertheless. <clears throat> Job is quite convinced that God has left him. And all he wants is a chance to square off with him. If I, only, if I only knew where to find him, I would state my case. And toward the end of the story, Job gets his wish. What do you think that moment was like? He was answered out of the storm. Interestingly, God doesn't seem to get around to answering Job's question as to why. He simply asks Job a bunch of questions. It becomes evident that God is full of goodness. He's uncontrollably generous and loving. And he's all of these things for no reason at all. Job never finds out about the conversation in heaven, but he finds something more important. He finds who God is. So the story becomes our story. We live on this earth in the lower stage. Winter comes, and we don't know why. But one thing we can know, and that is who God is. He's loving generous, and consequently, he cannot help but care about our pain. When God himself came to earth, he came in the winter. 
Jesus, like Job, was known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Where was Jesus? He was in the trash heap. He, like Job, was so torn by suffering that no one recognized him. We considered him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He himself would go through the winter of the absence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross was the ultimate paradox. God experienced the absence of God so that he can draw close to us in our loss and grief and even God forsakenness. If it's winter in your life and you wonder where God is, you don't have to wonder anymore. He's the God of the ash heap. Jesus was, in a sense, never closer to us than he was farthest from, from the Father. In the final words of the book, we find something rather unusual. Job's daughters are named, but not his sons. Not only that, but Job gives them an inheritance. In the ancient world, a father with seven sons wouldn't even think of giving his daughters anything. So why does the writer include this in the story? It's because Job now delights in giving. He's gratuitously good, uncontrollably generous, and irrationally loving. He gives for no reason at all. That should help us to understand that Job has found out who God is and seeks to mimic him as much as possible. That would be something that we should also give some thought to. The central question in the book of Job is, can a human hold on to God and in faith continue to love him even in the dead of winter? One can. One did. Something for us to consider. Job learned something that people in pain sometimes learn better than anyone else, that he was not alone after all. I'm reminded of the words of the hymn, he was there all the time. So as we close, I want to leave you with this one thought. When, inner, when winter comes in our lives, and it eventually will, we can be sure that the one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, will be there all the time. Let's pray. Father, we indeed are thankful for the love that drew salvation's plan and the grace that brought it down to man and the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Help us to recognize and appreciate as we should that the one who has begun a good work in us will complete it unto the end. Also, when winter comes to our souls, we can learn from Job, who has suffered more than we could possibly imagine, that although God may seem distant, he is vitally interested in our situation he has reasons usually beyond our understanding 
but he's always full of goodness, uncontrollably generous and loving, and that he's there all the time. Accept our appreciation. We pray for these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.